Welcome to the UC Architects Podcast. This is episode 7, recorded Sunday, September 9th, 2012. I'm your host, Pat Richard, and today I'm joined by Exchange Architect Dave Stork, Link MVP Stahl Hansen, Link MVP Tom Arbuthnot, uh, Exchange MCM John Cook, and Exchange Architect Michael Van Horenbeek. And we have a special guest today, Link MCM and MVP Randy Wintel. So let's uh, let's start it off. Dave, what's new with you? Hi. Um, well, actually, not, not nothing really new. Just uh, still busy designing a big environment, uh, 2010 environment, and digging some uh, content for uh, uh, 2010. So reading up on... Uh, the new stuff on uh, 2030. Good. That's about it. Good. Stahl, what's happening on your side of the world? Well, um, thanks for having me, uh, first of all. And um, not much, really. I'm still uh, in the project uh, deploying Link for uh, a lot of users. And um, we are now in uh, in the um, uh, testing phase. So we're going to do a Link stress test uh, next week. And looking forward to that. Good, and that sounds like a good topic to cover in a future episode. Um, yeah, sure. Tom, what's happening, buddy? Nothing particularly new here. Lots of uh, Link 2010 in the field and uh, increasingly more kicking around the uh, the Link 2013 bits, both in the lab and as, as part of the tap. So uh, just itching to do more 2013 stuff, really. Excellent. And the fastest talking guy that we know, John Cook. What's happening, John? Hey, how are you? Thanks. Uh, great, good to be back again. Um, been pretty much the same old. I've been kind of took a side direct from our, we're going to the phase two of our Jabber proof of concept um, to upgrade our MDM solution. So that's kind of what this last week was about. Excellent. Michael, our esteemed uh, editor as well. <laughs> how are you? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I actually came just came back from the MCT summit in Poland. Uh, was very educational, had a lot of fun, and uh, ready to dive back into the regular world with a lot of exchange and stuff. Oh, excellent, excellent. And uh, for all of our co-hosts, you'll find additional information, including links to our blogs and uh, Twitter feeds on our website, theucarchitects.com. And our special guest uh, this week finally got uh, Randy on here. Randy Wintel, how are you? Hey guys, how's it going? Good. So Randy, you're a, you're an MCM and an MVP, one of the very few in the world. Yeah, yeah, I sure am. Yeah, I, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background on me. I, um, I'm a UC architect at Unify Square. Um, I uh, I do it all from business value planning all the way through to uh, installations, really. So um, that's actually funny. That's what I've been working on uh, the last few months. I haven't done much technical stuff. I'm actually starting to feel a little behind, you know. I opened up Snooper the other day and didn't know what to do with it. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's me. I have a blog, uh, Microsoft UC Made Easy, that I've been doing uh, for a few years now. Um, I'm coming up on my hopefully third-year MVP renewal, um, and I've been an MCM, uh, geez, just a few months now. So uh, it was back in April, I think I I, uh, I passed. Um, you know, blog URL. We'll you know probably put it up on the site, but it's just uh, blog.ucmadeeasy.com. Um, as 2013 starts to come out, probably going to be a lot more content up there. I tend to uh, spike on that, you know, with the new releases. So, and Excellent. again, thanks thanks for having me. This is this is going to be great. Well, certainly welcome. And and you work with uh, Kevin Peters, who was on episode uh, four, I believe. So, yeah, lots of yep, lots Kevin of smart people at Unify Square. 
Yeah, we we got we got some good guys there. It's it's really good. So it's a great team. Good. And heading into our top stories uh, for this episode, uh, Microsoft has now officially announced the Microsoft Link Conference in February in uh, San Diego, a competitor somewhat to the Microsoft Exchange Conference, which if you've been around the exchange world for, for quite a while, you know is the event to go to if you're an exchange person. So Microsoft is now dedicating an entire conference to uh, Link, which is uh, certainly a, a welcome, uh, welcome thing. Tom, uh, you had some comments about that. Yeah, just uh, just to put the dates out there, really. So, with regards to the Mech conference, there's actually an extra day been tagged on on the, uh, I think it's Thursday the 27th, where um, MVPs Mike Stacy, uh, Tommy Clark, and Derek Kerr are all doing a, a bit of a link day. Um, so that's worth knowing about if you're already heading over to Mech, if you can uh, free up Thursday the 27th, and then the the actual full-on link conference. Um, is scheduled in between the uh, the 19th and 21st of February 2013. Um, I think it's Hotel de Con- uh, Del Conrado, San Diego. So uh, not much detail on that yet other than kind of a save the date. But if you think you can make it out to San Diego between the uh, 19th and 21st of February, then it might be worth keeping that in your diary. Uh, good, good. Yeah, it's uh, certainly... Uh, uh Good to hear. I know some of us had just kind of informally said, hey, it would be nice if if Microsoft brought back uh, Interact or did something for uh, Link on on the scale of Mac. Um, And so it's good to see that that, that they're doing this. Um, As far as the extra session at Mac, um, they have posted some information, and I did do a blog post on it um, Thursday, September 27th from 9 until 3.30. Uh, it's all about uh, Link Server 2013. They'll be doing some deep dive uh, into some of the new features as well as getting uh, you know up to their eyeballs in things like WAC and video and uh, architectural improvements. Uh, there is a $400 fee to attend that post session, um, and you can register for it right on the uh, meccasback.com website. We'll throw a link up to that on the, uh, the summary page. Well, there's also an Office 365 deployment for Exchange uh, session on the on the also on the 27th, and also $400. So uh, not only an extra link day, but also an Office 365 deployment uh, session extra. I I did see that. Has anybody heard who's actually presenting that? Well, uh, if you look at the site, it's still to be determined, um, and so. I haven't heard anything, uh, seen anything other than than this uh, session uh, on the the macisback.com uh, website. Okay. Okay. Well, good good things in the in the link world. A full conference and an extra day at Mac. So, well, at least we're headed in the right direction there. Next up, we have uh, general availability of Windows Server 2012. And Michael, you had some information on that. Yeah, well, so um, it finally became available for uh, almost the rest of the world on the 4th of September, which is uh, finally great news um, because means that we can go ahead and go with it in, into production. I actually already installed two of them in our in, uh, own environment at work. So, uh, And the thing that strikes me is that... Um, even though it's it's the RTM version and now I've been able to play with it, 
um, there's a massive difference with uh, the preview that was before. So it's 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 a good thing to see that um, after a while they made it available for uh, us professionals over TechNet, uh, as we weren't or I wasn't at least able to to play with it over the the volume licensing website since we don't have a contract with Microsoft. So, um, but basically, I'm 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 thrilled to to be using it more and more in in production. Do all the improvements, you know, failover clustering has has, has got massive improvements. Uh, everything around Hyper V 3.0. So I think it's interesting times, and also very interesting to see how these new features come into play into uh, the world of Exchange and Link, and how they will be benefit from from those uh, additional new features. Has anybody uh, played with Link 2013 on Server 2012 in the lab? No, I haven't uh, deployed yet. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the default we deploy on. Um, it, it, all the pre, or a lot of the prereqs are already there, so it does make life a lot easier to deploy on 2012 for sure. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's basically the same for uh, for Exchange. You know, uh, if you see what you have to do or the work that you have to do to get Exchange deployed on uh, the Server 2008 compared to Server 2012, then 12, then it's definitely easier on 2012. Uh, and even though it's it, it's still a preview version, I've got the feeling that Exchange 2013 runs better on 2012. It's more performing. So still have to see the final results or when the RTM version comes out, but definitely is it's an improvement. Yeah, I actually uh, was able to uh, upgrade it. Just as a test, I, I did a place of one of my production servers over. Uh, 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 I, was rem- I was actually remote controlling from work. <laughs> so I'm like, well, if I lose the server, it won't get fixed till I get home. But it, it actually worked. I was, <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> well, the prereqs have to be pretty easy. After all, I've got like a, a full menu-driven script that does it all for me. <laughs> I think it's probably the the... the most popular page on my blog is the prereq installer, so I'll, I'll have to come up with one for 2013. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, I love that script, uh, Pat. It's great. Yeah, I can't tell how many people have uh, gone like, who's Innovation? Because they see your folder. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I am working on one for the, the newer Wave 15 versions. And next up, we have uh, Nokia has... Uh, released some information about their upcoming phones, the 820 and the 920, at a recent event. And uh, Dave, you had some insight on that. Yeah, well, um, well, the first thing that that um, uh, I wanted to mention was that uh, actually Samsung beat the punch to Nokia with the announcement of a first uh, Windows Phone 8 device, uh, the Atif S, I think, of Atif 8. Um, and I, I thought that was uh, kind of interesting that not Nokia had the first announcement, but okay. Um, uh, but uh, in any case, the, 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 the presentation of the A- A20 and the 920 uh, Lumias, well, they have a, uh, I own the, the 800 and the 900, and I uh, very much like both of them. Uh, actually, the, the 800 more than the 900. Um, and um, well, they it's, it's good to see that they, um, Continued the design uh, and look and feel of the Lumias with uh, these two new 820 and 920 uh, devices. Um, the one thing that I uh, really liked most was the uh, 920 with the uh, well, kind of the pure view camera, the the high quality camera, and, and that was something that I thought, well, that could be a, a, a just a single uh, selling point uh, that camera. Um, 
uh, especially I was very interested, but my, my wife is uh, somewhat of a uh, interested in photography, and I certainly was like, oh, that that's probably a phone for you if we uh, uh, test it and if it's uh, well, actually the quality that they say it has. Um, well, other than that, uh, well, the the uh, the specs uh, of Nokia put up a, a press page with uh, the uh, specifications of both uh, devices. Um, well, the 920 is uh, the the well the ProMotion HD Plus uh, uh, screen. Uh, obviously, again, clear black, which is uh, actually very great in the 800 and 900. Uh, uh, as of now, it's the best readable f uh, smartphone I ever owned uh, in in uh, in well outdoors with the sun glaring and stuff. Um, and so I, I am assuming that this quality will also will also continue in 920 and 820. Um, and um, for the 820, there's even a uh, micro SD memory card support, which is uh, I think something that. A lot of Windows Phone owners uh, would have liked to see in, in uh, the current generation of Windows Phone 7. So uh, th that's a, a good development, I think. Um, and the 920 doesn't have that uh, micro SD memory card uh, support, but it already has 32 gigs of memory, which is, I, I believe, um, more than enough for a, for a smartphone. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh well, I, I have an iPad with 16, 16 gigs, uh, and I well sometimes I run into the maximum, uh, especially if I have a lot of uh, movies or something like that. Um, but for the smartphone, uh, I don't watch anything on my smartphone. Uh, well, for me, the, you know, the, the, when the 4S came out at sixty four gig, I have about like forty something gig. Our, our music libraries would say like forty something gigs, so I, I used to hate having only like some of my music on me you know what i mean right okay. uh, so like for me 64 gigs i had to have every song i ever owned on my phone and, and it, it does double duty in my car as my ipod also so mm -hmm. you know it, for me it's 64 gig was like you know finally that was my magic number but i guess it really depends on how much you know stuff you want to carry around well that that's depending on on your use uh, and that that's that's true and for me it, the 32 gigs is more more uh, more than enough so uh, that, that's not a problem with me one, one day we'll have virtual machines on our phones too we'll carry around so we'll leave room for that <laughs> yeah but i i, I, I don't think that uh, windows phone 8 is going to support the virtualization uh, just yet that would be awesome though right i i, th I think one of the and I've been somewhat vocal about this, is is Nokia's um, desire to not allow third-party um, high-end earphones to work uh, on their phones, those that have microphones and uh, hook-on-hook uh, play-pause buttons on them. Those don't mm. work on Nokia phones. And is that? You, ha you have to use Nokia earphones that have those features if you want those features oh the plug-in so, uh, the the, the plug-in uh, the, the jack plugs uh, headphones do you mean yeah so the the you know i've got the bose earphones the nice ones they were yeah. 100, 125 dollars and i use the the play pause button all the time when i'm traveling and that yeah. just does not work and you can't answer a call a phone call with the button oh, uh, that sucks. Or, or or hang up and and to yeah. me i think that that is severely limiting of uh, Nokia to mm. do that. And as somebody who owns one of the um, 
the 900s now, I don't think I'll be going to the 920 uh, as an upgrade. I think I'm probably going to revert back to a Samsung because of that. That's a huge issue for me. Mm. And I know that uh, online I've seen a lot of other people really complaining about that. Okay. I, I never – yeah. I, never, I, I use a Bluetooth headset, so I don't, and that's that's just working fine unless you're using the the, the microphone for uh, speech, and and so the, the quality is just dropping. But I haven't had any issues with that with the Bluetooth headset. Yeah, that yeah, t- that tends to. Oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things that I ran into when I switched from you know over the years from an iPhone to an Android phone. Um, you know, Apple gets the lockdown on every. There's a device for an Apple, uh, every Apple device, right? You can always find a headset that works with it. When I switched to Android, I had a similar problem. I jumped ship to Windows Phone and had the same problem. I even have, you know, I have Beats headphones that now don't really work. They work as headphones, but nothing mic-wise or control-wise. So, what might be another interesting topic at another time? I actually just got, um, courtesy of Plantronics, the the backbeat uh bluetooth headset right which is a more of like earbud style uh bluetooth and i thought it was interesting you mentioned the bluetooth as well because that tends to be the better solution it actually works um but the problem is you get reduced quality right so that still is a pain point um and what i was going to say that i'm hoping that happens is if we get more people on windows phone then maybe we can uh, you know we can start getting (laughs) some of these devices although if if nokia has a limitation then that's just a a hardware problem as well. Well, well even I, even if they if there was an adapter, a third-party adapter or a Nokia adapter that you had to buy, um, you know, I I sit in my cube at a client site, and you know, I listen to my Motley Crew while I'm building servers, and somebody walks up, and I need to mute the sound real quick. It's nice to have that button. You know, mm-hmm. Bluetooth is fine for for uh, phone calls. I can I can certainly deal with that. Although I do like using uh, the Bose earphones if I'm on a long call, like a call to PSS. Uh, or something like that. And and those Bose earphones, they work fine on my Samsung Focus, which is running Windows 7. Um, just the Nokia block in that, I, I think, is a bad move. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well my thing, too, is, you know, I, I carry around, a, a, I have a UC Voyager Pro Bluetooth headset, which I use a lot. But I also carry around a G, old GN2000, you know, USB, you know, wired headset. Because sometimes I find that they're better, but also it's like, you know, it's one more thing I have to charge, and I'm in the middle of a call, and I go, okay, great, my Bluetooth headset's going to die. Uh, sometimes wired is good because, you know, it always works, right? Yeah. Well, um, there's one final remark I want to make about the, 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 the Windows Phone 8 Nokia event, and that's the availability and the pricing of the devices. That's, uh, uh, Pat, you said that you're probably going to switch to a Samsung, uh, the, the Samsung Ative, uh, due to your headset. But uh, for one, uh, I think that pricing is also um, a very important part of this discussion, um, and I, I have it easy because my 800 is a, is my work phone, and the 900 I, I uh, won at during uh, Tech at Europe, so I didn't invest anything in in the phone. So uh, for me, that's uh, less of an issue. But but still, uh, if the eight, a 920 is a, is a very expensive, it could yeah, it could turn to people to other other devices, and and for perhaps even the Samsung. Yeah, good point. Um, Tom, you had uh, had brought up that um, the Sonos acquisition of Net and what that's going to mean. What do you have about that? Yeah, some information has started coming out from uh, from Sonos now around that. 
Um, we, we use NET gateways uh, fairly heavily. They're one of our preferences as far as gateway goes. Um, good devices and, and good support, in my opinion. Um, and Sonos, who are a big uh, big SBC player, more at the kind of higher end, have, have bought NET. Now, that, that's all gone through. Um, there's been word that the, the NET UX range will continue, albeit that it will be renamed um, the SBC 1000 and SBC 2000 rather than UX. Um, and there was a big announcement by Sonos just saying that they're going to continue along the Microsoft kind of certification route and they want to be able to you know, carry enterprises from whether it's a, you know, 100 users, 600 users on the, the UX2000 right up to tens of thousands of users on their, their more high-end SBCs. Oh, excellent, excellent. And, and we're going to have um, a session or an episode uh, topic coming up in the next uh, few weeks about SBCs and SBAs and what they are and why you need them and what to look for uh, when you're looking into them. So good information. Thanks, Tom. Heading into our uh, UC topics for this episode, uh, we're going to continue on with our discussion on Exchange, HA, and DR. Uh, We've had uh, quite a bit of discussion in previous episodes, and of course, this is a a fairly deep topic. So we kind of wanted to add some more information uh, about things to consider. Uh, We've had some questions come up about a number of data centers and how you should spread those out for your DAG and things like that. So Dave, uh, let's, let's have you get it started. Yeah, well, uh, in in a previous episode, we uh, we discussed. Uh, uh, I think Steve and and, and Michael discussed uh, um, the active active data center uh, setup, uh, which some people suggest as a solution for for uh, well for exchange. Um, uh, well, another uh, uh, point of discussion that I sometimes um, encounter with customers is the use of a third data center just for a, a single DAG um, and to place the file share witness in that third data center, thinking that um, that you have a high availability of your uh, single DAG. Um, well, uh, the problem with that is that if you lose your WAN connection between the two data centers containing the mailbox da- uh, databases and your file share witnesses in the third data center and your mailbox servers can connect to it, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with your uh, which side um, is uh, going to, to fail or which side is going to still be available and um, have quorum and, and, and stuff like that. And um, I feel that that doesn't have any benefit at all. Well, um, I, I have to agree. Um, I heard the other week that it was, uh, I think, Pat, maybe you, uh, that said there were, was one case that Rollsmith said that you could have or you should have uh, a, a uh, file share witness in a third data center. Could have, not should have. Um, but but basically, um, what you do is you increase complexity of your your setup. Um, yeah. And in the case that you lose the th- the one connection to the third data center, um, then your DAG uh, will be less resilient for for one thing. Um, if you get into the situation where uh, you lose a connection between two data centers, but they still can connect to the to the file share witness, uh, you'll create other uh, other issues. But basically. Um, you should avoid adding complexity to a design at all times. So um, even more, you know, a DAG is still built on top of a um, 
a, a fill over clustering windows. So if we go way back and you take a look at what it is, it's a failover cluster. Um, so we are using it actively, active, active, maybe in some situations, um, but you shouldn't try making failovers between data centers in such case uh, automatic. Uh, I think the documentation over on TechNet is quite uh, clear on that as well. Um, if you do a data center switch over, uh, then you have to do it manually. It's not a decision that a, something can take. And by, by making some design decisions by placing a file witness in a third data center just to force that automatic failover in case of a data center failure is just plain wrong sorry so um well well the automatic failover is just something that i um uh, probably don't want to happen because um well especially if if it's just the one link between the data centers uh you could end up in a split brain situation uh if you're not careful um and um it's not just only Exchange that has to fail over, it's also other systems and um, not all things can be automated or uh, is are um, in the within the resources of the customer to uh, let that autom- automatically fail over. Um, uh, especially if you have uh, something like a, a same namespace or something like that, you have to probably have to change some um, DNS records um, externally or uh, internally to make sure that everything is just uh, going to the, s- the correct server and the correct IP address. Um, so an automatic failover is something that I um, well would like to prevent. I, I want to have control in my failover actions. Uh, it is a d- bit different with uh, a single server and uh, a single database uh, failure. Uh, especially now with the uh, Exchange 2010 Suspect 2 rollup update 3 uh, with the cross-site uh, failover uh, of the cross-site connection uh, for uh, Exchange, uh, sorry, Outlook. Um, I actually used that in a design and I've checked that whether um, the database uh, would fail over to the data center. And I think that that um, is... Uh, that is an acceptable automatic failover, but it's not the da- complete data center. It's just a uh, database that is active in one data center, fails, and then becomes active automatically in the second data center. That is acceptable to me. Yeah, and then along those lines, I mean, you know, there's also considerations along the kind of the operational you know, chain of custody for Exchange. I mean, if you follow best practice and put the file share witness on another Exchange server, what the, how often is a scenario where we have a third data center with other exchange servers in there, right? And, that, and this is kind of and this is kind of setup. Um, so then, do you trust you know that that file share witness to go on another just standard file server and who owns that and you know uh, how do you have that control to to somebody consider? Yeah, yeah. And about that, the namespaces. Um, I had to make a design, uh, and and because we wanted to have cross-site uh, uh, database failover. Um, we couldn't use uh, shared namespaces uh, in both data centers because um, you have to, for 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 instance for um, OWA, the Outlook web app, um, you could be uh, get into a, a continuous loop because your data database of that user is in the second uh, uh, data center, and um, in, in this case, in this scenario, you we had two uh, separate Active Directory sites. So we had to have two separate uh, client access array um, uh, arrays uh, in each site. 
but also uh, uh, a client access server and, and connection point for uh, Outlook Web App. Um, and if we uh, kept uh, both namespaces in, two, in, in both data centers and thus the external URL, etc., um, the same, uh, users would, uh, well, the database would, would fail over to the second data center, but the users couldn't connect with uh, webmail, for instance, because uh, Exchange notices that you're in a different data center, so it will would try to redirect and then you get a loop and uh, well all uh, strange things uh, could happen and uh, so um, in a two data center solution with separate active directory site you just basically and, and you want to have a, a sort of a, a gradual failover so only single server or single databases that have to fail over you just have to have uh, different namespaces in both uh, data centers um, and that has consequences for your certificates. Yeah, and, and not only your certificates are, are very important. Um, uh, I think it was last week that I mentioned that you should take a look at the OAuth failback URL just in case that you had to switch over and you switch back to your uh, original data center. It also means that you have to take a look at your DNS. Um, I've come across several um, designs and several uh, solutions that were implemented where uh, actually the time to live of a DNS record was set to the standard of one hour. But yeah. that actually means that if you don't change that, then potentially during a failover or a fail back scenario, um, you could end up with a downtime or a possible downtime or a delay um, of one hour as something you definitely don't want to. Um, certainly if you go uh, take a look at bigger enterprise environments, uh, that could be a hassle because before everything gets replicated everywhere, or that every client is aware of the changes in DNS that could take a time. So definitely one thing to keep in mind in such designs is to keep the time to live to, I think it's a recommendation of five minutes Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. change-related stuff. Yeah, five minutes is the recommended uh, TTL, um, which is actually what I recommended to this customer. And and, and uh, to be clear, even if you, you have uh, different namespaces, there are still uh, DNS records internally and uh, externally uh, that have to have that short TTL. Because if you have a, a, a data center failover, and uh, it could be that you want users con to connect to the second data center, which they normally won't do. But how would users know that if the if the first data center isn't uh, alive anymore and can't re redirect you? So you have to change that. Uh, external uh, DNS record to the to your second uh, uh, data center to an IP address of your second data center. Yeah, I have a question too, uh, if I could. Um, have you guys ever seen a scenario where someone has a VPN connecting two data centers and want to do, you know, a, uh, a standby site, but the other site is across a VPN link? Um, well, uh, yes and no. Well, what I saw is that they used the VPN mostly as a backup. Um, but I've seen occasions where the main link went down and they were using the VPN to do that. Um, and I was actually amazed that it, it worked 
pretty fine as long as you make sure that you've got it available at the enough bandwidth uh, between right. both sides i don't see really an issue it's just connectivity it changes in the where uh, where it passes through whether it is a one link or an mpls or a vpn or whatever it is the only time that i really saw issues uh, and i still have to dive into that was a vpn connection between two sides um, but they were using an ipsec tunnel uh, with some special stuff from cisco on it and that just didn't work every time that that connection came into play um, the, the the connections between the service would just fail. So yeah, we have a scenario where uh, we're building on a, a, a new uh, uh, it's a you know an external kind of hosting company, and they're working on the environment. And their issue is that once they fail over, it's fine. When they try to fail back, none of the nodes will rejoin the the DAG, and uh, they have to take it open. I just was wondering if something's up, you know you've even heard of going across anything because I've never personally done it. So nope, uh, never encountered it myself. No, uh, me neither. So I wanted to bring up a question that came in from our, our Facebook page. And the question reads, I wonder if it would be possible to talk about DAC mode in a DRHA setup. I have DAC enabled in my environment. However, common issues with WAN links going offline can cause issues with auto failover. In my scenario, I have three AD sites, two of which connect to one DR site. Does anyone have some insight? Well, this is actually what we were referring to uh, before. That automatic failover part is actually not the right place to want to have it. Um, so DAC, what it actually does, it protects you from um, or data center activation coordination. Um, prevents you from having a split brain in case that a one link goes down. Um, it doesn't do anything uh, for, uh, when the link goes down. It only makes sure if the remaining nodes come up again uh, without one link or connectivity between the two sides being up and running uh, that they'll uh, mount databases. So it'll prevent mounting of databases just to make sure that you don't have two copies running uh, at either side of the, the of the one link. Well, um, it won't do anything else than that, actually. So um, if, if he wants to use or if he tries to use a uh, automatic failover, um, then he, in my opinion, and feel free to jump in, it's not the right thing to want to, and DAC will not change anything about it. Because if you disable DAC at that moment, um, you still won't have automatic failover for one, and you definitely increase the risk of having a split brain. That's a great description, too. Yeah, definitely some good information. Thanks. Uh, moving on to uh, what's next, uh, address book policies. So there is some more flexibility with Exchange 2010 address book policies, and we wanted to talk about uh, about that as well as migrating from legacy Exchange 2003 segregated address lists into Exchange 2010 address book policies. Michael, you had some information on that. Yeah, well, it was actually following a project I did uh, a few weeks ago for a customer that was moving from moving from um, address list segregation Exchange 2003 to an Exchange 2010 environment uh, with address book policies. Um, the process itself is pretty simple, um, but during the the migration, we we came to we we saw some issues, uh, and the first issue is not really a technical issue; it's more a a, a political question, a, a supportability issue. But the only supported way to move from address address list segregation to address book policies, as far as I'm aware of, is that you have to uh, undo all the changes you made in Exchange 2003. You move to Exchange 2010, and then you rebuild. Uh, 
your final solution with address book policies. So while that process um, is pretty simple or straightforward, I'd say, uh, it does involve some issues because uh, the, the reason that one uh, implements address, address book policies is to avoid seeing the entire address list, right? So during the coexistence period, there's no real way to have the address list segregation and the address book policies working together, at least not on a supported way. Um, and for those who don't know, the address book policies are actually um, policies that you can apply on a on a mailbox that will enforce um, or will enforce a certain view of a global address list and different address lists within. So that way you can chop up your uh, entire global address list of your environment to only show a subset to certain users. And um, the, the 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 way it does is that address book policies is a native function in Exchange, so it's it's much better than going hacking away at uh, ACLs in, in Active Directory the way that you did it in Exchange 2003. But as I said, the real problem comes from the, the period of coexistence. And if you want to maintain the functionality, so the, the segregation of the address lists, um, during the uh, the coexistence period, you either have to go temporarily into a uh, non-supported uh, situation where you uh, redo the changes on Exchange and have address books uh, policies in Exchange 2010 and then gradually move over users, or you'll just have to accept the fact that if you move over um, users or while you're moving over users, you expose the entire global address list uh, until the address book policies are enforced on a user that's on Exchange 2010 because address book policies can only apply to a user whose mailbox is on Exchange 2010. And uh, in this particular case, uh, it forced us to do um, a Big Bang migration during a weekend because the customer really didn't want to either go in a unsupported situation and B, have the address book uh, policies uh, or the address books uh, exposed to the end users. So um, that's that's basically one, one common problem. The other one uh, that we encountered was uh, the email address policies. And what we saw is that we recreated for that uh, company uh, the email address uh, policies uh, for certain users based on the attributes that were used to filter the users in the first place for the uh, address, address list segregation. But the problem was is that um, somehow during the move from the, the ELDA-based query to OPOTH, um, something got literally lost in translation, um, meaning that the address book policies in Exchange 2010 didn't get applied properly uh, on the on the mailboxes, uh, which at that point revealed part of the the, the address lists to the users, uh, which was obviously an issue. So this means that. Uh, although the process is pretty straightforward, there's a lot of things to 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 take a look at, and um, I find it actually a bit striking that when um, a service pack two came out for Exchange 2010 and the address book policies were introduced, that that Microsoft actually really said, uh, okay, well the only supported ways. Uh, undo the changes, move them over and redo the changes, uh, which I can imagine is is a problem for a lot of companies. Um, well, uh, myself, host, I haven't had any... for instance. Yeah, that's actually what I was, was going to, um, that I haven't had any uh, experience with that so far, but I can imagine that um, a hosting company who offers such functionality to, to some companies uh, decides to move to Exchange 2010, well, he'll be, ha- um, he'll be having that same issue. Yeah, and 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 that, uh, you had the luck that you could do a big bang migration during the weekend. But uh, I, I suppose that there are a lot of hosters that 
aren't able to do that uh, with with presumably larger environments just in the weekend if they have a lot of data to migrate. So uh, that could be uh, some some uh, some issue for 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 hosters. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So um, it's 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 a pity that they'll have to revert to uh, well, not really hacking around, but uh, after uh, undoing the changes for the installation of Exchange, uh, reapplying some changes to the address list, or try moving tenant per tenant uh, in their environments over to Exchange twenty ten to just make sure that they still have the address book policies applied. Um, another way that I could think of, uh, and feel free to comment on that, is really go cross-forest migration because you'll not be sharing uh, the same address list after all unless you're going to do some for sort of directory synchronization. But you could use that into your advantage and only synchronize the ones that you're going to, to actually move over. But the issue that I'm having with that is that you're... Um, adding complexity to your scenario. And as I said before, uh, avoid a complexity where you can. Yeah, yeah certainly. Although, um, if you are a company uh, that has uh, a resource force, a resource force exchange and a separate uh, Active Directory with accounts in it, uh, that could work because you then have to, well, then you already have to make a uh, cross-forest migration. So that would, in that case, you wouldn't have much of a problem. But I don't think there are a lot of uh, companies that have a separate resource for us just for exchange. At least I I didn't uh, see any uh, companies who had that. Uh, but that's, that's that's not as uncommon as, as at least in my experience as you think. Well, maybe maybe, maybe in the U.S. Uh, for instance. Yeah, maybe. But, but in the Netherlands, I haven't seen uh, <laughs> that that much. Uh, well, um, I haven't seen it uh, ever actually. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, usually like you know mergers and acquisitions, that kind of thing. The vestitures will see. Yeah, that that's true. That's true. Well, well, I've seen cases where they really decided to go into a resource forest for uh, some applications, uh, but then after a while, they start seeing that uh, adding a resource forest, while it is fun at first, uh, well, not really fun, but <laughs> solve some issues at first, it creates some other issues afterwards. Um, so that's perhaps something that we could talk about as well. Uh, integration with, for instance, Link in crossed forests um, uh, situations where you've got multiple forests using uh, Exchange and Link. Uh, so it adds some some complexity there as well. Things that you really have to be aware of. Um, but but going back to the address book policies, there is an inter interesting thing as well. Is that uh, another thing that we we saw, but that wasn't really a, much of an issue for that customer. Is that uh, they had exactly two. Um, uh, Apple devices working in the environment. So luckily it were only two devices. The problem was it was two managers and um, uh, some software running on top of Mac doesn't, uh, or on top of an Apple device, sorry, doesn't uh, actually use the ABPs. For instance, Entourage on Mac, uh, because it uses LDAP queries to get your address list, it'll bypass the client access server. And this means that for these users, address policies don't apply. So what we actually had to do there is uh, block these devices, just make sure that they couldn't connect to Exchange. Well, that's not very nice. <laughs> well, Especially if uh, they're managers. Uh. They, they complained. They complained. They definitely did. But um, when we then said what the alternative were, uh, they were more than happy to switch over to a uh, a more convenient device like a Windows PC. Uh, uh, last question from my side: How um, is it supported to have Exchange address book policies? 
uh, within a hybrid exchange environment. So with uh, Exchange Online from Microsoft and an on-premises uh, uh, server and in users in both both uh, sides. Yeah, definitely. You can have address book policies, but it, they won't work in Office 365 because it doesn't support address book policies. Yeah. So as soon as you move users to the cloud, they'll uh, lose any address book policy that was applied. Um, and if you want to avoid having such issues, uh, for instance, if you only want them to see the online users, uh, which I would find bizarre, but then again, uh, then you could do some selective desync um, uh, filtering oh, right, right, yeah. uh, to move only the objects that you want to see in the cloud to Office 365. Well, and since desync is now supported, that would be an option. Yeah, well, desync filtering is indeed something that I'm very happy about because um, I've I've supported a, a, a project with uh, Office 365 for education for, for a high school who had uh, who wanted to uh, put all their students in uh, in the cloud and all the uh, uh, teachers and, and uh, supportive staff uh, in the on-premises server but they also wanted to have some sort of degree of separation between uh, well actually a, a sort of a address book policy so that was my question it was about but they already implemented district filtering so that only the students are um, 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 synchronized to the uh, exchange online environment so so in that case, it wouldn't be a problem to separate uh, the address uh, book of uh, uh, students in Exchange Online and on-premises users. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. Well, that's cool. Cool to know. The cloud. Nobody uses the cloud. Ah, come. <laughs> Sorry about that. I made that mistake yesterday. So, uh, uh, okay. Sorry about that, people. <laughs> But a lot of people use virtualization, and of course, that always brings up some questions about virtualizing both uh, Exchange and Link. Um, Stahl, you had some information uh, on that as well, as and so does uh, Michael. What do you guys have to say? Yeah, well, I um, I thought about bringing up the Link virtualization uh, as a topic here because it's always um, an interesting topic, and uh, I, here in Norway, at least, um, a lot of my customers are virtualizing almost everything and uh, the last year uh, or years I have seen uh, a lot of consolidating from uh, hardware to uh, virtualized infrastructure. So uh, I just wanted to talk about virtualization and uh, some of um, the uh, caveats with virtualization and also here uh, around the table here uh, what experience you guys have with um, virtualizing. Uh, so I wanted to talk about uh, what's supported on virtualization and uh, how you should deploy it. And um, first of all, uh, you need to deploy on um, Hyper-E, uh, R2 uh, or uh, VMware, uh, the latest versions. Um, so virtualizing Link is not supported on the Hyper-E for 2008. Um, and um, I want to focus on the um, server-side virtualization. Uh, as of uh, 2010, you could um, virtualize um, almost every server role, that is. Uh, so that was a big step because in OCS days, uh, we, we couldn't virtualize uh, roles containing uh, media and um, real-time media, like audio and video. 
what's not uh, able to um, virtualize is a branch office uh, gateway or uh, mediation server with gateway uh, like uh, SBAs, uh, like we're going to talk about in later episodes. And the link server should not be um, part of live migration or uh, being moved um, around uh, hosts. Uh, so it should uh, die with the host and then you can uh, power it up uh, on a second host. So um, the thing it is about virtualization is um, uh, server cores and amount of server cores because um, in back in the days when 10, 2010 came out you couldn't uh, have more than four CPU cores per server. So that meant you um, actually had a um, reduction uh, to scale. Uh, and um, um, so you could have uh, about 5,000 users on a standard edition server. But um, uh, on a virtual server with four cores, you get uh, about uh, 2,000 uh, users. But uh, now both VMware and Hyper-V uh, are able to have lots more server cores. Uh, the thing about that is you don't get 100% um, scaling in terms of what you get when you have a dedicated hardware box. You, you get about 90% because of the virtualization layer. And the link is very dependent on uh, having access to all, um, uh, all hardware because it does real-time processing of real-time media. Um, and you should also have just one link server uh, per host, uh, especially if you have um, multiple uh, front-end servers, you should uh, spread them over different hosts because they use the same type of um, um, uh, processing power. So what I, I wanted just to uh, say is uh, the scaling goes down because since you have, um, you, you need to know uh, how to scale your service in, in terms of uh, what type of users you have and um, also uh, how they are going to use uh, Link. So uh, I actually deployed a lot of um, Link servers here in Nori for 200 users, 500 users, and uh, then virtualization is uh, okay. And you can even do co located mediation servers, but you need to know. Uh, what's um, the maximum amount of users and traffic should be. So if you have four cores, you get 50% reduction. And even if you have two cores, um, you need to know the limits about that as well. So I actually have deployed in, uh, in Ori for small customers, uh, link servers with two cores. And if you have a co-located uh, mediation server on there as well, you actually get... Um, um, yeah, a lot of fewer uh, uh, current calls than if you have a dedicated mediation server and um, um, place it on hardware. So uh, with two cores and with um, uh, virtualization, you actually get uh, about 64 um, mediation server calls. And also you need to have a reduction on the... Um, uh, video side of video conferencing. So you get uh, about, um, yeah, I, I think it's about uh, um, 
50 or something like that uh, concurrent people in a meeting as well so uh, in terms of supported or recommended you really should know that how it scales before virtualizing and if you have other needs like an enterprise uh, you should um, consider if it's um, uh, if it's a, a good strategy to virtualize because then you'll need uh, a lot more power and maybe you can uh, get better off by not virtualizing. So you shouldn't virtualize for at any cost. So um, I, w I was wondering uh, what you guys, Randy or Tom, um, experience about virtualization uh, on Link. Yeah, I was going to say... Um just some information, you know, I, I work primarily with very large enterprise customers and we have yet to get into any virtualization um, in production. Um, some of them have, have moved into it in the labs. Uh, you know, across the board, it's generally been a 50% capacity reduction, right? So that combined with the requirements that Microsoft has laid out for supportability with, um, you know, a single host dedicated to uh, your servers, right? And it it just never really went over too well. And, and the requirements to do that didn't, it just made more sense just to buy servers, right? Because in these larger enterprises, plopping in those blades is, is pretty easy, right? They just kind of, they have it. Um, what's interesting though, is with 2013, there's actually going to be some improvements on this um, there's nothing released yet and I, I I don't think I'm gonna be breaking any NDAs just because it's my own personal uh, opinion on it um, but they, they are enhancing it to the point where they're gonna try and get uh, rid of that 50% reduction so um, you'll see it I'm hoping that by uh, you know by release they're gonna talk about it but they're they're targeting a lot closer you know 90% to 100% uh, of the scalability I don't know what that's gonna look like you know who knows they could come forward with um, all these beefy requirements but either way uh, it will be really good to see them support that and have uh, full capacity there yeah uh, and I, I asked Microsoft about this uh, when Hyper-V came with support for eight processor cores uh, and um, uh, they actually said that 2010 also scaled up to 90% if you put enough cores on uh, on the virtual machines. Yeah, I think if you see the density you're seeing with the hardware these days also, I mean, it's going to get to the point where even if there's a penalty, it's going to be so minor that it's going to be you know not noticeable at some point. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's really cool too? I wanted to mention just from some real world experience, and you you, cut, you said something about you know no live migrations, right? And something everybody should consider if you are virtualizing is that these these are media servers, right? These are um, uh, real time media servers. So, for example, I actually had this happen internally the other day, um, which I always like talking. You know, we we learn our dog food internally, right? Um, somebody I think made a change to a hard drive, right? Expanded a drive in in VMware. Um, and it took down a front-end server, right? Because even though it seems like it's really quick, right, and it's live, it's not when you're talking about um, a server that's hosting an AV conference, for example, with a bunch of people on it, right? That <laughs> that was the exact scenario that happened, right? The conference, boom, gone. Um, yeah. And it's it, it's just those are the types of things that are going to be enhanced over time and people often forget about. But as long as you're careful with it, it definitely makes sense. Um, for that so uh, you know go ahead you guys keep going on that yeah so uh, on the exchange side uh, Michael you have uh, what do you do on the exchange side when virtualizing 
Well, um, actually, there there's a lot of things that we could cover there as well. Um, but as you said, uh, there are a lot of things to 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 keep an eye on. To keep an eye on, uh, especially for uh, scaling and sizing your exchange environment, um, because usually what I see is in a lot of environments, people are virtualized just to be virtualizing, which is not a good option, um, or they try uh, lowering the resources used for exchange. Uh, that's definitely not a good option either. Um, so, and there are a lot of 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 things that you need to take care of extra on top of um, a virtualization. For instance, you were talking about uh, live migrations. Um, I, I have a lot of uh, customers asking me, well, should we be using live migrations as a form of high availability for exchange? Um, and I tend to slap them around and say, well, definitely no. Um, because in my opinion, um, the one and only thing that you should be using is uh, the native built-in capabilities of Exchange uh, as a for a high availability point of view, because uh, live migrations or fee motions, uh, whatever you uh, want to call them, they're only used um, or they're not aware of the application that's running on top of it, so they don't really care in some way. Um, and there used to be some dispute between Microsoft and VMware over what scenario was supported. Uh, but basically, um, it's, it's okay to have a vMotion just to, to protect your Exchange server uh, from, from having a crash on that host. But if you want to have high availability for that application, use the built-in uh, features. Um, and, and of course, uh, and I think it's more uh, an, an exchange thing than it's a link thing. Um, it's, it's storage. Uh, usually in a virtualized environment, you're using um, shared storage. And the problem that you're having with a, a DAG, if you're using a DAG within a, a virtual environment that's running on top of the same storage, you're potentially taking two, three, or four times this, uh, that amount of, of storage away. And at that moment, your SAN doesn't become cheap. It becomes very, very expensive. Um, add on top of that uh, some environments that do some do some hardware deduping on top of uh, their um, uh, their virtual environment, and you actually get a huge single point of failure. Imagine uh, two exchange servers running in one data center on top of the same storage. Uh, they have an active and a passive copy and they do dedupe on, on, on the disk side, on the hardware side. Well, that's actually reduced to one single copy. So if anything goes wrong on top of that uh, hardware thing, you lose both copies at once. So um, I don't really see the point in, in, in such things. Um, well, definitely some, some companies need some, some more education about uh, how these things work and how they behave in a virtualized environment. And I don't think that's, that's different for, uh, for Link uh, for, for, for that matter. So what you guys are saying, you actually don't deploy a Link or Exchange uh, that much in a virtualized environment? Oh no, we do uh, a lot of a lot of times we do uh, deployments of exchange because it's a perfect candidate. But um, uh, really need to take uh, take a lot of time in the planning and really need to know what you're doing with it. Um, there's no, nothing against virtualizing virtualizing exchange as long as you make sure that you've got a proper resources, the proper IOPS on your storage. Um, you're good to go. Yeah, one com one common thing um, that we need to. Uh uh, take uh, into care here is um, uh, all, especially on Link you should reserve some resources just for Link so uh, it doesn't have to fight with other servers for um, the um, uh, resources that's one uh, caveat actually <laughs> um, uh, and, and with Exchange um, I have 
Um, no trouble at all with the client access and the hub transport server, edge transport server to be virtualized. I think the um, the, the, the the main trick with Exchange is to uh, size uh, the mailbox role properly, uh, have that uh, whole planning uh, um, uh, worked out perfectly, and uh, the unified messaging uh, role is also something that when you virtualize that, you have to take uh, extra care. Um, uh, so, but mailbox role, unified messaging role, those are the most important thing that, that have to have extra attention when you're going to virtualize. And, and in my opinion, the client access and the hub transport server is, uh, well, all, all you can almost just put it up there and don't think about it. Although you have to have uh, 10% uh, extra, extra uh, overhead. Um, but uh, uh, that's how I uh, make my uh, sizing for for exchange when it's uh, virtualized. That yeah, I mean, it, you know, kind of to, to sum up too, the, the decision, you know, needs to be, you know, what you know what makes sense in the product aspect. Also, you know, the question of scaling up or out it comes into play with virtualization because if you, let's say, for Link is a good example where you actually do have a capacity reduction, um, you know, because of virtualization. So, you know, if you need the same capacity, but it takes four machines, four virtual machines to do the same work as too physical, you know, that's more OS cost, that's more support, that's more backup. Um, if you're in a hosting you know, type of scenario, you might be paying some other third party for that, so the more servers, you know, cost you more money, even though you're spending less on hardware, you might be spending, you know, even more money on maintenance and, and what have you. So that's something, something to always keep in consideration. Yeah, cool. Well, I, th- I think it's, it, is, it is important to, you know, look at uh, the operational maturity of the environment. Um, can they support you know, uh, physical hardware versus, you know, uh, virtualized. Uh, do they have the, the expertise to handle the virtualized environment? And if so, can they support, you know, the 50% decline in capacity for uh, virtualized uh, pieces and go from there? You know, obviously, you're, you're always going to have people that, oh, we want to do uh, uh, one-to-one uh Virtualize. We want to get the same performance out of virtualized that we would out of out of physical, and, and that's really not going to happen. Um, so each environment kind of dictates its own uh, its own end result. But uh, moving on into uh, Link 2013, um, plenty of opportunities for people to come up with cool new tools uh, to accomplish things. And Randy, uh, you came up with. Uh, a great script that's gotten a lot of mention around centralized logging and taking kind of some of the, the the effort out of doing that. Tell us what centralized logging is in Link 2013. Sure. So um, in Link 2010, everybody, or at least most people are familiar with this whole idea of the logging tool or the tracing tool and um, uh, that UI that's there that allows you to start logging on a single server. Good old well, snooper. Common- yeah, and, and and analyzing it all with Snooper. And what's what's interesting is, um, in in environments even with a couple front end servers or a couple you know mediation servers, it really starts to become a pain because you never know uh, if you take the front end for example, what server is going to get that right. Let's say you have five servers that are load balanced. You don't you know you got to start logging on every single one of them and go back and stop and all that stuff. So what they did, which I think is really cool in 2013, is they introduced this idea of centralized logging. Um, where you can actually start logging on on all servers in a pool or, or you know a, a bunch of servers, whichever ones you pick, and you can kind of control it all 
centrally, right? Centralized logging. Um, and they also, with that, introduced this idea of always-on logging, which is just always uh, running on every server. Um, and, and that way you don't have to reproduce the issues. Maybe it might have gotten caught in there. Um, the, the problem is, is that they, they kind of took two steps forward and one step back, right? Because the centralized logging is a great thing, um, but they took the UI away from you, right? So they actually only released a command line version here, and it's actually an, an EXE. It's not even a, a PowerShell uh, script or any or PowerShell commandlet. It's all part of a, uh, you have to run in a command prompt. So um, what I did was create just a PowerShell interface to turn this on and off, um, basically allowing you to, uh, you know, put in your values, some checkboxes similar to what you would have seen um, in the previous version uh, of the tracing tool. And, um, you know, it, it's a work in progress. I, you know, there's a couple things that I need to do. For example, I only have the pool option. Um, I need to add another dialog box to allow you to either enter in a server name um, and, and, what this does is basically just facilitates that process in the UI, right? Uh, you start, stop, and then you can uh, export the logs out. Um, what we, um, what, what's really cool about centralized logging is that you can also search across all of those logs um, to view it. So, uh, for the for, sorry for the information that you need to view. So that's another thing I got to work in here where maybe you can enter in a, a, a username or an IP address or whatever to only get that data that you need. Um, and it helps reduce your log size. So um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it works. You know, maybe they'll do a res kit tool or maybe um, I can you know, you know jump on top of that by having this be the, the go to tool for it. Um, but yeah, yeah, a lot of good things to come with logging in 2013. So with, with centralized logging, are the logs still stored on the local server and you just query them across into a common interface, or do they all get stored now in one place? Uh, they're all stored on the local server. Um, okay. So just like in 2010. Be, yep. And what's going to be interesting about that is the planning for sizing on that, and I haven't really seen anything on it yet. I'm, I'm sure that in the RTM docs it will be there because they do roll over and you actually can control the size that's allocated to the files. Um, so you have you have some control there um, to restrict that file size, but you know you might want to capture more data, right? In this, this always-on scenario is really cool, but at the same time, um, you can start running out of disk space. So uh, you got to be careful with that, uh, with the, the log rollover. Um, yeah, and on the uh, where they are on the server, that's actually a really good question. I honestly don't know. Um, I, <laughs> I haven't even looked at it yet. I could, we could probably find it really quick, but I, I do not know where they are. Yeah, it seems to me that um, in in the legacy in 2010 they were in the the tracing directory, um, and I believe I read somewhere that that is no longer the case and that it's not uh, as short of a of a path that you have to go looking for. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So on, on the client and the server side, they did move the location of the logs. So one quick point on the server side with centralized logging, there is the, these ETL files, which have always been around, which are kind of the raw logging files, which you can't really read. Those are stored someplace in a default folder. Um, that's kind of always writing there. And then when you're using this new centralized logging, it's this CLS controller.exe. You can actually export so that you, 
you choose the location that it that it comes out and that's your readable text file which can be open in snooper or notepad if you're really into that it's funny my boss actually won't doesn't use snooper he always uses notepad and it's it's kind of funny to see um yeah yeah uh, and uh then on the client side, they did shift to the client location, right? So it used to be really easy, right? Percent, uh, user profile slash tracing, it's there. Now it's actually dumped into an app data folder under Microsoft uh, uh, Office link. Um, I don't know why. I really, I, they haven't been able to, it doesn't make any sense. It's just, it, it, it's really a pain, um, unfortunately, but it, it's, uh, and they really haven't documented it either, I don't think. I mean, Everybody sent everybody looking, right? <laughs> so, did anyone try? Have you tried it? Will the ETL files on 13 be readable by Snooper? Uh, yeah, well, the ETL files aren't, but when you actually export out that, so when you run CLS controller and you say uh, export out or whatever, I, I, I honestly can't remember the commands right now off the top of my head, um, you can open that in Snooper. You know, you save it, even if you just save it, you can save it as anything. It's all about the formatting of the text, and it does the same thing. That's what's really great, too. There was a discussion about this on the MVP DL around you know, because they didn't talk about it enough, they didn't, uh, they got people worried that, um, there, there is no interface to read them. Right. But they actually, you can open these in snooper. They did not get rid of that. It's all about the method of, of, uh, collecting the logs, um, and specifying what you want to collect. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's the only thing that's changed. And on and a really last, really quick thing on the, the client side I forgot to mention is that you can see when you're actually, uh, if you hold control and right click and do the configuration information right on the in the in the taskbar, they actually did add a, an item now that says local log folder. So you can find it that way. Uh, and that might be a little, a cool little uh, tip, I guess, and uh, that link configuration information pane is starting to get filled with a lot more info. And yeah, I did notice like that. that. Excellent. That's how I was able to find the change in the logging path myself. I saw it there. Yeah. Good. And of course, we'll have a, a link to Randy's great script uh, on the summary page for this particular episode. And I know, Randy, you've you've released a, a couple of uh, or worked on a couple of updates to it, so you're, you're constantly mm-hmm. uh, putting more effort into it. So. Yeah, I hope to have actually just a there's there is a big open item in that server selection, and I hope to have that done in the next like two weeks. Right now, I'm actually and I'll, this is a mini plug is that I'm working on the Link 2013 Unleashed book, and I have a deadline coming up for next weekend. So once I get done with that, I can uh, spend some more time on the script. Excellent. And uh, of course, some other information as far as Link is concerned is uh, some new Gartner information, and uh, it's raising uh, <laughs> it, it, it's raising some uh, some concerns or some uh, uh, some frustration. And uh, Stahl, you had some words on that. Yeah, thanks, uh, Pat. Um, every year, I uh, write a review of the gartner unified communications uh, magic quadrant report and um well uh, to say what uh, what it is um it is uh, gartner analyzing the market for unified communication and the magic quadrant is uh, measuring uh, uh and putting vendors into different categories um the categories are niche players visionaries challengers and leaders and um uh, and it uh, and they are placed within this uh, quadrant uh, by completeness of vision and uh, ability to execute. So they have done this uh, every year since two fa- 2005, and um, um, 
and the big thing uh, this year is um, that uh, Cisco actually uh, um, are now uh, considered to be uh, in front of uh, Microsoft. Uh, both Cisco and Microsoft have been in the leader quadrant uh, for a couple of years now, and um, Microsoft have uh, always been in front of Cisco. But the last year it was very close, uh, and now uh, Microsoft is uh, equally behind Cisco that Cisco was behind Microsoft last year. So um, uh, the big change uh, and um, uh, the products being measured here uh, is uh, for unified communication, and I reckon everyone knows uh, what's uh, in that, that you have voice and telephony, conferencing, messaging, presence, and IM and uh, support for different client platforms. So the big trends this year was mobility, and it was uh, cross-platform uh, uh, clients, uh, cloud, of course, and uh, interoperability. So um, uh, this year, um, uh, Link 2010 was uh, the one being um, scrutinized, and um, for Cisco, it was their latest release. And um, the thing, big thing uh, for Cisco is the rebranding of the clients uh, to um, to Jabber, uh, and uh, for Link it was uh, mobility. And um, uh, since the Link and Microsoft released um, the uh, Link mobile clients across uh, different uh, platforms like uh, Android and iOS, um, so. My thoughts on this is um, um, it's okay, Cisco is in the lead, but I think that um, for next year, maybe it will be even closer or maybe Microsoft will be back in the lead because uh, I think Link Server 2013 will address some of the biggest trends within uh, unified communication that Gartner is um, talking about because uh, the mobile clients will get uh, full modality uh, and you can do voice over IP and um, video conferencing, and uh, as well as um, doing hybrid uh, versions uh, of Link, and um, uh, with Office 365 and Link Online, so you can have users both in um, in um, uh, Link Online and on-premise. Uh, in terms of interoperability, uh, Link will go. Um, over to use um, SVC codec, video codec, that is more open and easier to integrate with. Um, so I think uh, Microsoft is doing a lot of great things, and um, especially about the centralized logging on the, um, on the server side and PowerShell um, to administer Link uh, is a great advantage in, in terms of what Cisco does. So uh, any of you guys have any uh, input on um, the Gartner subject? Oh, maybe just a little. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have our own little piece, but yeah, whoever wants well, to go first. Well, <laughs> one thing that I, I liked about that was that uh, I think that was your uh, conclusion, Staley, that um, uh, that uh, Microsoft, uh, well, if you already have Exchange that you better off with Link, that was a, a big, uh, well, happy yay for me. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, I, like I said, I've been going through this uh, uh, Jabber pilot at a company I work on. It's kind of a comparison to Link and, you know, with even the concept of maybe even moving to, to Jabber from Link. And, 
you know, so I've been in, you know through this a lot. Uh, seen you know Cisco's roadmap, but you know back to the, the Gardner report. I mean. Yes, I would say that, you know, I mean, as much as I love Link, our mobile, you know, answers right now are not great. I mean, they're good enough, I think, and I think the way Microsoft spent the time to build the Link apps into the platforms that they run in much better than just simply throwing a SIP client out on a, on a, on a, on a, on a mobile, you know, uh, OS. I think the Android client's a train wreck, personally, um, but that has more to do with Android being a train wreck than anything else, in my opinion. But, um, but so, yeah, I mean, obviously, though, you know, the Jabber client, especially the iPad client, and, and, and that's what I found. That was the thing with the Garden Report for me that was, that was the biggest pile of BS, in my opinion, was that the mobile client, yes, you know, you can, you can check all the boxes and say, yes, I have an Android client, I have a, a Windows, uh, you know, phone client, which they don't, right? But, um, you know, but it's actually using those clients. I mean, I don't think anyone actually installed and used them. They just looked at the PDF. Oh, Cisco, do you have this? Oh, okay, good. You win. Because in practice, the Jabber answer on a mobile is a train wreck, except for the iPad. The iPad is, the client is great, but everything else is a mess, personally. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I also think uh, they, uh, they actually looked at the feature chart and, and just, uh, okay, Cisco, you're on the lead. Congrats. <laughs> yeah, because if you really use them, you're like, there's no way this makes any sense. Yeah, I'll tell you something really good here, and I, I got I to be very careful in the amount of details I say about this. But um, I actually recently did a very big project for a customer um, doing a, an evaluation between Microsoft and Cisco. Um, and, and this was a very big topic was that, yes, they can do what you need them to do, right? Cisco and Microsoft both can check the same boxes and it's there or whatever. Usability is a very important factor here. Um, and, you know, I'll give you a good example is how many different clients are there for the iPad? Four, right? Um, there's like three or four different iOS clients that you have to use. There's there's the capability even on the PC to do Jabber, uh, WebEx Connect, uh, WebEx, you know, the Cisco AnyConnect VPN client, the WebEx web client. You know, there's, there's all this stuff that gets mixed up. And I think that's unfortunate that Gartner ignored that. Uh, they, they did do a single sentence on the platform is uh, confusing. You know, that, that was an understatement, I think, and I'm sure we all agree, is that um, I was in a meeting where Cisco was giving a sales presentation and they couldn't tell us which client to use because they got confused because they didn't know which yeah. of the five <laughs> clients they were actually going to do to the same boat as well as well we're literally and you know I, we have the c-level people in the room and they're yeah. going like you know we don't even know which one the client there's just too many things and, and the handoff on ios between any connect and the webex client now the, it is, uh, the, i will i will say the webex client the 3.5 update for for ios that just happened like two days ago it's pretty good they, they changed a bunch of things that were definitely terrible about the client like if you didn't have any connect already running and you picked up a WebEx, you know, uh, link, and you know, so the 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 link in email or something or calendar like opened up the WebEx app, it, it would not even know that the that Honeycat was running. Sometimes it was like, okay, why am I not getting the option to do VoIP or you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a. I think it's just from the at least from the Gartner results perspective. I think everybody, um, it, it's all opinions, and it is a uh, an interesting shift um, with with respect to that. But like like you said, the 2013 release is going to be completely different. You're almost, you know, to be fair, they just compared um, a three year old product versus a, a brand new Cisco product at the same time, right? With Link 2010 to them, and um, so it, it it almost fell at a bad time, right? If they had. <laughs> waited a couple yeah. months maybe it would have been a completely different story so yeah i would agree i mean i think you know to use that phrase you know skating to where the puck's going or where it's been i think you know right now 
Uh, there's some more progressive stuff on the on the Jabber side, at least in mobile, I would say. But we all know that within yeah four months, six months, we're going to have MX versions of Link um, for the tablets. I mean, you're going to see that we we almost and we also have seen the you know, the, the, the desktop client for 13. I mean, it's way better than anything Cisco's doing right now. So mm-hmm. you know, I think they answered Link 2010, but or maybe not even that. You know, uh, uh, you know, parody, but uh, I think the 13 wave is just, you know, way past where they're at. But, you know, again, personal opinion, but uh, using these things in, you know, over the past couple months, it's been, you know, they do some, they do, do some things right, you know, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know, and I know that we have the, we're supposed to talk about Jabber, and I think it's a good transition into it. And one thing that I, I didn't see them call out that I think is incredibly important is this idea of anywhere access, right? Um, I, in case you guys can't tell, I'm a major uh, Cisco Microsoft compete uh, person, especially right now, is that, um, you know, you see in the world that we are in has to be able to be used from anywhere on any connection. Um, with Cisco, they provide the ability to do that through an ASA, which is a nice expensive appliance, right? Um, but what they don't tell you is that how poorly it works. Um, right? So yeah. uh, they don't have the... They cannot do audio or video over a VPN connection, right? Microsoft does this over a secure connection through the edge, and it works flawlessly. So that's something I also think that Gartner missed out on. And, um, you know, it's actually, again, another mini plug. It's something I talk about in the 2013 book that's very important, gets into details around why Anywhere Access is important for for UC. and, 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 you know, how, how the competitors com- or compare on that. And, and just to clarify my last comment, they, they can do audio over VPN. Um, my experience shows that it, it is very bad. Um, and actually, pilot scenarios have failed to actually even get it working. So I guess that was a loaded comment in that, yes, they can do that functionality, but I think it's very poor. Um, yeah, I agree. Audio. I mean, they, they really have no true answer for the edge like we have in Link yet. I mean, I know that they're working on that, and there is a, a, some sort of uh, secure connected product. There's another product coming. There's going to be something like our edge in the future. But right. uh, until they have that, and I think the other, so the other, you know, if we want to talk about clients or whatever, the other key thing that, that they have no answer for is federation. And I think of all the things, you know, you can argue about which client's better and voice integration, all that, but I think federation alone is the one uh, topic which they have no answer for right now. And, you know, when you you know when you know have Skype and a million and a half Skype users, or is it a billion, well, however many, many Skype users, right? I mean, you start talking about, uh, and you just see it increasingly. I mean, the number, uh, like the work that Matt Landis has done on the federation, you know, that getting those that out there, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy who's running Link now and making federate, so. Yeah, the federated thing is another huge topic that that, that needs to come up more is, um, you know, sorry, Cisco, but XMPP isn't an answer for global federation with all these companies, right? Um, Actually, in this scenario with the customer, they they got brought up and the customer was blown away that Cisco's answer was, yeah, you need to uh, get your, anyone else you're already federated with with OCS or Link, you're going to have to make them install this XMPP gateway. Um, or they can join a WebEx meeting with you, right? You know, that was like their big sales pitch was right. that they could join WebEx meetings. And it's not it's the It's all same. about the WebEx. Um, it, it, you know, the federation thing is huge. Um, that that's something again that I have like a whole big section on in the book because um, it's another driver for where UC is going right it's all about being able to communicate with anyone um, and Skype just blows it out of the water right I mean you, you talk to anyone in the world consumer or business partner now 
Yeah, yeah, just on yeah. just on the Java stuff as well. Um, I think, like Randy was saying, I, I've been involved in a couple of scenarios where we've tested them side by side. Uh, is Link and Java. Um, I think you can kind of. This is a Microsoft UC podcast. Kind of take what we say with a pinch of salt. In the same way you take what Cisco say in a pinch of salt. But as an end user or as a customer, try both of them and don't just go to the demo suites and see them. Try them because there's a world of difference between kind of seeing it all being loaded up and flashy and actually using it and conf- more importantly configuring it in real life. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, if you're in a compete scenario, right, if you're listening and you're in a scenario that you want to try this out in and maybe executives want to go with Cisco or Microsoft, fire up Jabber and um, do a three-party sharing conference and then come back and see if Microsoft or Cisco is going to be uh, your better UC choice for your end users. So, yeah, I mean, and, and to be fair, too, like, you know, if we're in our uh, circumstance, we're in the link dedicated scenario, too. So we have some challenges that's, you know, to be fair to Cisco that, you know, most environments won't have. But, um, you know, when you're trying to do an integration piece like, and not just, a, you know, throw the clients next to each other, see how they work, when an actual type pilot, you know, things like uh, SIPURI come into play and all these, you know, different things that, that they, they do a totally different way and again to be fair to them you know obviously the, the, the coupling with Lincoln Outlook is much tighter I think in some ways they can they leverage the same APIs but they're as limited as well that they can do um, compared to what we have you know if we can override with registry controls for some things so you know in each environment it might be different um, how that sort of proof of concept would look but uh there's a lot of challenges to get that working right, and especially if, you know, you can't just cut over from Link. You know, if somebody's still got to use that for the day-to-day work, uh, it's hard to isolate somebody and say, all right, just, just uh, do Jabber from this point forward. Yeah, and also you should think about the administrators because uh, Link can uh, be administrated by using PowerShell, which, which is uh, a Microsoft tool, and uh, you, have, you can use your PowerShell competency on other products as well. And uh, what do you think about the Cisco uh, terms of administration? Have you any experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I looked at the, you know, the or- use the org admin to kind of define some of these things. Um, and, and like I said, in our circumstance, you know, we have a problem because they sort of assume that um, SIP URI and SMTP is going to be the same. And we know that in a lot of environments it's not, unfortunately. Um, so that's always, that, that was one of the major challenges for us. And, you know, what they call it the JID, the, the, the Jabber ID. Um, being it's kind of its own thing, and, and also understanding how how it works is also you know they don't use uh, the CPURI that they use is not really the routing; it's just the label sort of. Yeah, so that's why you know so it's it, it's a different way of looking at things from how, how we're used to. Yeah, I think um, that there's a lot to think about with integration between the two worlds, the Microsoft and uh, and the Cisco world, or the Microsoft and the Microsoft world. Um, three things sort of I'd like to call out just to wrap up about uh, thinking about Jabber versus Link. Um, watch out for group and persistent chat. Um, Cisco kind of refer to having group chat, but it's actually multi-party IM. Um, federation is obviously one we've talked about as well. There's not a lot of XMPP federation out there, and there is a lot of Link Edge out there or OCS Edge. So again, if you want to work with other people, it's worth understanding who's got uh, who's got what in terms of the, com- the companies you work with. Um, and kind of finally, in terms of the user experience, remember that the, the Cisco at the moment are kind of in this dual client phase that we were in a little while ago. So they've got Jabber and WebEx. Jabber does desktop sharing by video. So if you want to do full integration, kind of active desktop sharing where the other person could take control, then you're jumping into WebEx. Um, you know, and WebEx is, is great, and, and I'm sure we've all used it before, but user experience-wise, you're kind of uh, your split client, whereas uh, Jabber, you know, is, is one thing, and then WebEx is another. 
your users in Link, they just seamlessly transition from kind of two-party to multi-party in any modalities. And, and you know, I, I don't know why Cisco thinks that, that green background on, on the WebEx is cool, because it, I, I can't stand looking at it. That's why I hate WebEx for that reason alone. <laughs> and, of, of course, you know, we, we are kind of somewhat bashing on the, on the Gartner information, but it is an, a good informative read, and we, we certainly will have a link for that on the summary page. So I, I do recommend that you do read it. it. It's got some good information in it. And of course, from the, from the, the Jabber and the XMPP side, you know, Link 2013 did make a move to move the XMPP role to the edge, which uh, makes, uh, makes for less servers um, as well as giving you an HA strategy for XMPP. So there is a little bit of improvement there as well. Right, and I think their answer. Sorry, yeah, I mean, real quick. You know, Microsoft's answer is like, hey, well, well, we can federate with pretty much everybody. Who can you federate with? You know, Cisco. I mean, yeah, you can talk to Google Talk and other XMPP-based uh, networks, but that's it, right? I mean, without a third-party gateway, it's in the mix somewhere. You know, whereas Link now can talk to pretty much everything, and I think that's kind of key. Right. Right. And moving on to our last topic, um, TechEd New Zealand. And lots of information coming out uh, about that. And uh, Dave, you had some comments about that. Yeah, well, uh, I saw that uh, Scott Snow announced some uh, sessions, Exchange 2013 sessions, uh, that would be uh, presented during the uh, Tech at New Zealand uh, uh, event. Um, and uh, I just checked uh, the website. We, we will put the link up on our uh, site. Uh, is that there is also uh, some Link 2013 sessions uh, that will be uh, presented um, uh, well were presented actually because it was uh, between the 4th and 7th uh, of September so last week um, and uh, coming week uh, Tech Australia is also uh, happening so probably also some uh, 2013 content um, um, and uh, on channel 9 uh, those uh, sessions will probably will be available f uh, for watching uh, as with other uh, Tech events I do want to have uh, one little remark is that I didn't really expect some 2013 uh, subjects during these uh, TechEd uh, events because during TechEd Europe uh, in June uh, they uh, ended every exchange uh, and probably link session with, uh, well, mostly the exchange session with the Microsoft Exchange Conference. If you want to have 2013 uh, sessions, do you have to go there? Um, so, uh, and it, it gave a feel of um, a, a sort of a exclusive, uh, exclusive uh, content for uh, the Microsoft Exchange Conference. And that is not really the case anymore because it's now uh, New Zealand that has the first official um, 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 uh, sessions uh, and information about uh, 2013. So that was a bit of a surprise. But uh, even so, uh, if I would have known this uh, beforehand, I probably still wanted to go to uh, the Microsoft Exchange Conference. Um, but for those who don't uh, are able, who aren't uh, able to go to the Microsoft Exchange conference, those videos are probably a good uh, source of uh, information um, uh, if you didn't already play with the preview version or uh, uh, other information uh, sources. So that that yeah. was what I wanted to say about that. And I think, uh, of course, this has not been mentioned at all, but um, it it would not surprise me to see some of the Mech sessions, the audio and or video. Uh, being made available ultimately on the on TechNet. Um, we'll we'll yeah, see. They did, yeah, they did. I think they said they were going to record some, but they were some, guaranteed yeah. Uh, yeah. that all of them would be. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 via Twitter I saw that there were some session would be recorded of the Microsoft Exchange Conference. Uh, but 
I think that most of the TechEd sessions are recorded, so that's also the difference uh, between that. I hope, well, I hope they don't record the, re- the arena sessions, because if I go in there and try to answer a question, I might look like a doofus. Maybe, maybe <laughs> it's good. It's not going to be recorded. <laughs> well, I, I think one of the reasons why some of the stuff was released at, uh, at TechEd New Zealand is because some of the, the information is now solidified that that Microsoft wants to get out there. And so it was probably a good time for them to get some, start getting some of that information out there when originally I think maybe they thought it wasn't going to be ready until closer to Mac. Of course, Mac is only two weeks away or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, and as I said at the beginning of the episode, it's definitely the conference you want to go to if you're an exchange person. Um, think of it as, you know, tech ed, but, just exchange. I mean, everybody there is exchange focused with a little bit of link thrown in. Um, you get all the product group people there, um, the who's who of, of of people that are mentioned on the exchange team blog, Ross Smith, Scott Schnall, uh, yeah, Greg, I, I, Greg Taylor, everybody. Yeah, and I, uh, I even tweeted, I was looking through the thing, I mean, Greg Field is going to give, he's got like five sessions. I mean, and if you don't know who that is, he's like, he, he's like the Lord King of all things, uh, HA and, and database and so I mean, you're, you're you know you're like literally talking. He is you know he is you know, co- you know I don't know if he still actually codes himself, but I mean he is the guy. I mean there is no other guy. That's the guy, and he's going to have five sessions. I mean that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, there's I lots of there's lots of MVPs that are presenting too. Jason Sherry and Devin Ganger, Paul Robichaud, all those guys are are given sessions too, and I think uh, several of the uh, the masters, the MCMs, are are presenting as well. And and I, I can tell you as as I've mentioned in the past, having gone to one of these mech conferences before, it's it's you're going to come back with a brain just full of 400 level knowledge. Um, as well as you're going to have a blast with all the social networking, all the you know after hour events and things like that. So definitely visit uh, mechasback.com uh, for some more information and get the boss to send you. So wrapping up uh, uh, this episode, I wanted to talk uh, about something that came out just a couple of days ago. Matt Landis, who's one of the Link MVPs, has essentially self-published a Link. Uh, two, uh, 2013 book called uh, Link Server 2013 Step-by-Step for Everyone. And um, it's available as a PDF on his site, and we'll have a link for it. And um, I tell you, take take a look through it. He's got a lot of information. Essentially what he's done is, is taken a lot of his blog posts and kind of condensed them into uh, a book format that takes you kind of end-to-end from, from start to finish um, through some of the hurdles that you might have in trying to get um, at least the preview version working right now. And um, and he's working hard on adding more information as it comes along. So I, I give um, a lot of credit to Matt for for uh, taking this. And as, as Randy mentioned, he's, he's writing the Unleashed book. I've written uh, bits and pieces of books in the past. It is not a fun task. It's a lot of work um, for very little, if any, money. Um, and so people that uh, that undertake that, I think, uh, deserve a lot of credit. And, and Matt's efforts uh, certainly are going um, unnoticed. So hats off to Matt. Yeah, totally. I, I, I actually have it open on my desktop right now. It's uh, it's pretty cool. He's, yeah. I mean, he's like one of the hardest working guys out there. Yeah, <laughs> he, always, he, he writes a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that does it for uh, for Episode 7. And I'd like to thank our my co-hosts this week, Dave, Stahl, Tom, John, and Michael, and of course our very special guest, Randy. Hopefully, Randy, we didn't scare you off, and we'll have you back in the future. 
Yeah, definitely, guys. This was great. Um, thank you. Um, I definitely would love to participate more in the future. And um, when it comes out, go buy Link 2013 Unleashed, and uh, maybe I can collect some money off the book. You know. <laughs> well, we'll definitely we'll definitely have you back to talk about it some more. And and of course, I'm sure somebody here will uh, will do a review, and hopefully, I can get through it quicker than I did the the 2010 Unleashed book, which uh, I only <laughs> I only was ever able to really read when I was on flights. And my weekly yeah. flight my weekly flight is 25 minutes long. So I would read about a page and a half each flight. <laughs> so yeah, this will be good. It's uh, it's going to be a good time. So good, good. And uh, thanks to uh, Sirkin, our producer this week, and Michael, hopefully the editor for this week. So I know Michael, you're the hardest working guy of of the group here. So thanks. And I'd like to mention that the UC Architects group will be at the Microsoft Exchange Conference, sporting our snazzy black shirts, complete with a QR code on the back. Uh, so be sure to stop us and say hi and tell us what you think about the podcast. And we want to remind you that the UC Architects are online. Visit our website at www.theucarchitects.com. On Twitter, at the UC Architects. Uh, visit our Facebook page on facebook.com slash theucarchitects. And we have a group on LinkedIn. Podcast episodes are available in the iTunes Store, the Zoom Marketplace, and in your favorite RSS client like Outlook see our website for links to everything. We'll see you back in the next episode with Steve Hosting.